and welcome to episode 44 of Penny Red. My name is Daniel Hodges, writer and designer of Victoria and your host. Today I've got a couple of guests, the first many of you will recognise from the last episode and also if you own a copy of Dread you'll recognise the name Epidiah Ravishol who is the author of that splendid game and in the uh, vein of it being a festive season, a holiday season if we want to try and be as inclusive as uh, possible or just a good time to get together with family and so forth one of the things I'm going to do this episode is talk about a few things that you might like to purchase for the people that you love, like or feel obliged to get something for over Christmas Christmas. So, so um, how's it going, Epi? Uh, I'm doing good. I'm doing good. And you've got a hot lead for us on just yes. such a on just such a thing. Yes. Well, um, today, uh, well, uh, this is the fourth year of our Epimus promotion. Right. Uh, Epimus is, of course, the well-known uh, game-giving holiday uh, that occurs every <laughs> December 24th, and going back to time in memoriam. And, That's right. Uh, Yes. I believe just, my grandfather told me about that. He was bouncing me on his knee. Yes, exactly. It's, a, it's an old, old custom. Um, and uh, what we do, what we try to do every year is to find ways to get, uh, to, to let people give uh, PDFs of games as gifts. Mm-hmm. The promotion changes from year to year. Uh, but what remains the same is that you buy uh, a PDF of a game for a friend of yours. Yes. And that that will be delivered to them via the magic of email uh, on <laughs> December 24th. Yes. And you will get a copy of that same PDF for yourself oh, at see. the moment of pur- purchase. Ah. So it's it's like a, uh, a two-for-one type deal. Basically, yes. So uh, the idea behind that is then you can spend some time reading the PDF and you could be ready to play the game yes. on December 24th with your friend or loved one, as is tradition. Yes, that's right. Yes, And this year we have, uh, I believe, I don't have the all the specifics yet, it's still coming in, but uh, we'll have something like 14 different designers and uh, 16 different games right. available. Nice. In the past, uh, what designers have been part of your celebration? Uh, well, there's Emily Kerboss, who is my wife. Uh, also, there's been Nathan uh, D. Paoletta. I, uh, I always, every time I'm on a podcast, I end up having to say his last name, and I've never, ever asked him if I've been pronouncing it right. Um, <laughs> uh, Vincent Baker, Meg Baker, uh, Julia Ellingbow, uh um, Rob Bowl will be involved this year. Joshua A.C. Newman, Elizabeth and Shreyas uh, Sampat of Two Scooter Press, and we've had Fortune's Fool from uh, Pantheon Press. So, uh, quite a few. Uh, um, a real breadth and, of designers there in different types of games. Here's something for everybody, really. Yes, yes. And, and we're expanding each year, you know. In fact, if any designers. Uh, it may be a little too late to get people involved this year, but if they're interested in next year, to just contact me. I'm not trying to be exclusive or anything like that. So uh, we just uh, want to give people a little bit of an economic break um, during this time because, you know, everyone's spending a lot of money. And, yeah, for uh, sure. And what we'll do is we just give them uh, a gift that's easy to give. Yes, and and uh, at, at an easy price. 
Yeah, for sure. I don't think we need to sell too many of the listeners on on role playing, but um, on this as a as a way to to give gifts and maybe try and get somebody else involved. I think it's a a splendid idea. Exactly. I should say a little bit about uh, what this year's promotion is going to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, although I don't have all the specifics done, it is going to be a naughty or nice Epimus promotion. Right, yes. <laughs> so we'll have games that are naughty, yes. that, that deal specifically with uh, adult content or have rules that deal with adult content. Sure. And then we have games that are nice, that uh, are all about... Uh, they're either family friendly or uh, have specific elements on them that avoid or uh, penalize violent conflict. Mm, so. Nice. And so, where would somebody go? Go to epimas e p i m a s dot wordpress dot com. Well, there you go. My next guest with a uh, hot tip or lead or whatever you want to call it for Christmas is uh, best friend of the show and most uh, featured guest. It's, are you guessing? Yes, you're right. It's Sean. Hi, Sean. How's it going? Hey, Daniel. Uh, thank you so much for having me on again. And uh, always a pleasure to come on. I have my uh, top four gamer gifts. I know you said they could be non-gamer gifts, but I'm, I'm a gamer through and through. So that, that's... That's fine. So... So that's what I've got. They're they're ordered in uh, in price order from lowest to highest. Sure. Um, all in a fairly reasonable gamer gift price range. Um, Great. I, I mentioned her before in my last episode as somebody I would want to game with. Um, and Jay uh, McGonagall. Jay McGonagall. Yes, she is. She is selling for twenty five dollars. Um, uh, she is selling copies of her book, Reality is Broken, signed copies. Nice. Um, I will send you the URL you can put on the game, you can put it on the show notes. I will do that. Uh, she will sign personal copies to make them out to um, to whoever you want them for with whatever kind of note you'd like mm-hmm. uh, about her uh, book about bringing games into the world. Mm-hmm. And that that is $25. Right. Um, the next one on the list, uh, which is not only a will-be great game, but will will help an awesome cause, is you could kickstart Fate Core for someone uh, right. nice. and designate them as the recipient. Nice. The, the, the book is the basic backing is thirty bucks, and the book is going to be hardcover. Um, I've had early looks at the game, and it's awesome. It's if you back it now, you immediately get the PDF, which is in development, which nice. is also cool. So that's sort of a, a gift that if you gift it to someone else, and, and you know, you it's uh, it's something now and something later. Yes, um, so the gift that I, keeps giving. Exactly, yeah, and and there's so many stretch goals that are you know the more by kicking it now you add to the stretch goals so more and more products keep coming along the way so uh it's a fantastic thing to kickstart and a fantastic gift to give to someone um the uh the next item is a board game that i've played several games of and it's a ton of fun and it's a great game for um around the holidays because it's very very simple but a ton of fun and that's uh, king of tokyo right um the the premise is that you're a giant monster like godzilla and you're trying to take over Tokyo, but King Kong or whoever else wants to kick you out and take over Tokyo, and you basically get victory points by staying in Tokyo, but you also get your 
butt kicked. <laughs> and uh, you win by either killing all the other monsters or accumulating enough victory points. Nice. Um, so that's got a lot of replayability. I played like six or seven games all at once okay. and loved every one of them. Length? And, uh, length, 25 minutes, I'd say. 25 to oh, 30 minutes. Perfect. Short game. Yep. Um, and then finally, and that's uh, that's $40, I believe, is retail. And uh, finally, last on the list, if someone doesn't already have it um, and you love them dearly, Cards Against Humanity is a fantastic gift that always engenders people laughing as they feel like they're horrible individuals. Um, and laughing hysterically as they feel like they're horrible individuals. That's right. Or maniacally. <clears throat> and, yes. shif- and shiftily glancing from side to side, perhaps. Yeah, hoping nobody that isn't playing the game has heard the things that they've just been saying. <laughs> Excellent. Ladies and gentlemen, Sean Nutner. Thank you so much. My next guest is the lovely Karen Twelves. What do you got for us, Karen? I'm sorry. I forgot what it was that you're asking me about. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start over. <laughs> oh, so, no, no, I'm not. I'm absolutely not. Christmas gifts, Karen. Come on. <laughs> Christmas gifts. Um, okay, so good gaming gifts for people that don't game. One is Dixit. I've turned so many of my friends onto that game, and it's it's a really fun party game. Another good one for family um, is Bananagrams. The great thing about Bananagrams is that you're kind of competing against each other, but you also are playing – you're, like, playing constantly, and it, it negates having to have a conversation. Right. So you're spending, like, quality, quote-unquote, family time, mm-hmm. but not actually talking at all. <laughs> um, so, so that is just wonderful. Yes, that does sound good, yes. Something that I always do for friends or if I, you know, if I don't have something else in mind that I really like doing is giving ornaments. Right. That was something that we always did as a family was give each other ornaments and and give friends ornaments. And so I like that a lot because then you have a lot of, you know, ornaments on your tree that mean something that mm-hmm. are just stuff that you bought at Target because it was pretty. Sure. So I think if you can find an ornament that um, kind of speaks to you about a certain person. like. Sure. Uh, you know that it you know is like if they play an instrument then it's the instrument or whatever right. if you were a tree uh, ornament you would be a saxophone sure <laughs> <laughs> um yeah i those are those are my ideas well thank you very much karen thank There's you very much karen 12 hug some air Lillian Cohen Moore is my next guest. That was my best attempt at Yiddish based upon a two second conversation Lillian and I had prior to uh, me beginning this recording. So, hug Samia. Thank you. What, and Yiddish, come on. What's, what's thank you in, in Yiddish? <laughs> uh, uh, Hebrew is, is the one that oh, I Oh, I'm you. sorry. Uh, what, it's what, okay. What's, what's, what's the, tell me the difference here. I'm, I'm, that's terrible. Uh, well, Yiddish is a hybrid language between oh. German and Hebrew. Oh, so who speaks Yiddish then? Uh, East uh, Eastern European Jews. Oh, I see. Mm-hmm. Well, there you go. In that case, in Yiddish, is Haksamir, would that work for somebody uh, who was uh, in uh, who was speaking um, Yiddish then as well? Yes. It oh, was. well, there you go. So I'm safe. Thank goodness. Yes. All my listeners in, uh, in all my uh, Jewish listeners in Eastern Europe will be uh, will be rubbing their hands that I've recognised them in their uh, native tongue. <laughs> so, what what sort of um, uh, gifts can you recommend for Hanukkah? How do I do with that? Was that better? 
That was good. Oh, that was you. excellent. Thank you. Um, well, let's see here. Uh, the first thing I can think of, which I bought myself this year, is Dragon Chow dice bags because they're amazing. Right. Uh, let's see here. Uh, the Doctor Who towel from Think Geek uh, came my way from family recently. Uh, nice. They have a really good uh, official licensed selection of Doctor Who merchandise. Right. It's, it's nice. a good good thing to look up at Think right. Geek. Uh, let's see here. Uh, the convention book New World Order for any technocracy mage fans in your life. Right, yes. So that would be me. I'd buy that for myself. <laughs> Uh, pens, pencils, and dry erase pens, because whether or not you're a gamer, those are things that go missing so frequently and frustratingly in one's home. They do. I wonder about that. I mean, there must be a huge stockpile of pens and pencils somewhere, because if they always go missing, then mm-hmm. then they must be somewhere. Where are they? Where are these pens and pencils? That's my New Year's resolution, 2013, to solve the uh, solve the pens and pencils issue. I'm not. I don't think I'm ready to solve the missing sock issue, but the pens and pencils issue, I'm going to take it on. Okay. Uh, and I've done enough traveling this year to say that this would be incredibly useful for next year. Uh, travel size toiletries from Sephora. Uh, they have an entire selection on their website of toiletries that are sized to TSA regulations. So that's very nice and useful. Yes, that does sound very useful. (laughs) Excellent. Well, ladies and gentlemen, Lillian Coamore. Thank you. My next guest is the lovely Kristen Hayworth, who has just managed to squeeze uh, a quick couple of gift suggestions in before she does her uh, broadcasts, her her fancy show. What's it called, Kristen? Uh, <laughs> it's called Talking Shit with Dave and Earl. Right. Um, and it's a it's a show that my buddies and I have thrown together, and we try and get a couple three new guests every week. And then it's it's kind of formatted. We have a few bits that we do, and then we have the guests suggest topics to talk about. So. Kind of ties everybody in. Nice. Winds up being a lot of fun. We do it over um, Google Hangouts. We do the on air. Uh, So if you want to see it, go to youtube.com slash G O V N E H. Right. And on that channel, you can also see some of the poetry I do. Nice. So there's your uh, so there's your first uh, there's your first gift suggestion a uh, subscription to your uh, YouTube channel which is yeah, free. Yeah, if but, you, you want to send me money for that, that would be great. There I would upgrade so, all my equipment. So there's a perfect gift for Kristen. So what about other gifts other than obviously your your presence on the internet? Well, I would have to say one of the most fun things I have played lately was a game called Dixit. I don't yes. know if anyone suggested that yet. Karen Twelves, but she gives, didn't give us much of a background about Dixit, so tell us about it. Dixit is a little bit like apples to apples, except it's all done through pictures. Right. And it's a little kind of like you, you pick out a card out of your hand and you give a phrase right. that, that the card, like the picture on the card evokes. Right. And everyone else picks out a card out of their hand and then everybody votes. Right. And and. Points are scored according to who votes for what cards and right. if they got your card or nobody got your card. And, right. Yeah. And it's beautiful. Like, the artwork is absolutely gorgeous. Right. And it, it's a lot of fun to play. Right. I didn't think that I would like it. Being like, hey, here, say something arbitrary about this picture. Right. And then we'll vote for it. Right. Um, okay. <laughs> how long and how much? Um, I can't remember what we paid for it. Uh, we bought it at Endgame Oakland. Um, sure. I'm I've seen it on Amazon. I don't think it's over. Maybe it's about thirty. Right. Sure. Not really sure, but you know, in the realm of board games, it's sure. not too bad. Sure. Um, it took us, I think, maybe half an hour to an hour to play. Sure. 
And they have expansions, like ours can play up to six, but then right. they have a Dixit Odyssey that can play like 12 or 20 or something. Sure. Like, so great family game. Sure. Be great with kids, be great with friends. I Brilliant. love it. Brilliant. Anything now, else? Well, for when you send the kids to bed, of course, Cards Against Humanity. Oh, but you have to be a bad person. That's right, yes. Yeah, <laughs> Cards Against Humanity is another, another uh, suggestion uh, that uh, Sean, Sean Nittner gave us there. But uh, what particularly do you like about Cards? Well, tell us a little bit about uh, Cards Against Humanity. Cards Against Humanity is apples to apples if it was written by a bunch of lowlifes <laughs> and people who like really lowbrow humor and right. poop jokes. That, right. that, <laughs> And I can see how it's very much not for everybody. Sure. There's a lot of sensitive material in there. In fact, right. people have made posts about how to censor your deck. Yeah, right. But um, as long as you have your big boy pants on and aren't too sensitive to topics, it's a lot of fun. Excellent. Excellent. And do you have a third one for us? I do. If it were me, and I could ask for just about anything, um, Amazon credit to sure. buy books. Sure. I. I spend most of my money, I think, buying books on Amazon right. and comics and all that. So just like any Amazon gift card would just fill me with glee. So there you go. Ladies and gentlemen, Kristen Hayworth. Hi, my name is Sam Chupp. I'm the co-creator of Changeling the Dreaming and Wraith the Oblivion. A couple of different ideas for you. Um, I definitely want to just put out there that since people who like indie games rarely get to play them. If you write somebody a little note, a little promise note saying any game of your choice, I'll play with you no matter what it is, you know, and you give it, give it to that person. That will be a tremendous gift because indie gamers rarely, there are games on our shelves. We have not had a chance to play. And I mean, I personally would love it. Uh, Somebody said to me, you know, here you go. I'll play whatever you want. doesn't matter. I'm like, great. I finally get to play Polaris. I finally get to play Dogs in the Vineyard. I I finally get to play, you know, these other games I haven't had a chance to play. Um, uh, There's also Posey Rings. Posey Rings are really cool. There's an Etsy shop that will custom ring stamp um, your whatever message you want on a Posey Ring. Um, that'll uh, let you uh, give that to your true heart. Have a good time um, creating something that means b- something for both of you. Uh, a character artist can draw you a coloring page of your favorite character, and then you can give that to um, a person's favorite, you know, a person who really enjoys that character, um, and they can color it and make it their own. So it's a little more personal than just uh, a piece of art you commission for somebody. Um, I love shaving kits. Uh, I have, uh, very little hair, but what a little hair I have, I do have to shave off from time to time. And so, um, I really love the, uh, you know, getting a brush and the soap and, and, you know, that kind of, uh, uh, item fetishism is really wonderful. Finally, a French press coffee. Uh, you can get a small little French press coffee, uh, set that's like $19, and if no one has ever had that, if you, they like coffee, they will love this. So happy holidays to everybody. Have a wonderful Merry Yule and a wonderful solstice and a wonderful Christmas and a wonderful New Year. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. My next guest is uh, Renee Ritchie, a previous guest on Penny Red. Uh, so, Renee, what are your uh, top tips for uh, gifts for this holiday season? Know your audience. Make sure that you know at least a little bit about the person you're giving a gift for. Because you want to resist getting a gift card 
just because it's so impersonal. It doesn't really show that you know the person very well, unless it's a gift card for a store that you know they frequent very often. Right, yes. Uh, or you're not sure exactly what they're going to get them. Right. Um, of course, if you want to get something for someone you have a bit of a romantic interest in, you might want to pick up a, a copy of Gospel of Sarah from Machine Age Productions. Right. That's the one we're working on right now. Sure. Uh, we've got that up on Indiegogo. Right. Uh, it's promising to be pretty hot, actually. Right. Nice. <laughs> hot as in, uh, as in a hot property or steamy? Oh, yes. Very steamy. But oh. ne- definitely not something you want to get for your mom. All right. <laughs> unless she's into that sort of thing. But that's a completely different story. Yeah, that's, a, that's a conversation um, for another podcast, perhaps. Ooh. Yes, Absolutely. <laughs> Um, and sometimes, especially if you're on a tight budget and you just happen to be good with your hands, make something. Right. Putting in that extra time and effort to make something for someone you care about, it it adds a little bit of sentimentality. I mean, I'm making a pair of socks for my boyfriend for Christmas. Nice. Yeah. And he has a hard time finding socks. He's got big calves. He's got really nice, big, muscular legs. And so you need I a, like a decent pair. Right. <laughs> so, uh, are there any other gifts that you've uh, that you've crafted that have been successful in the past? Um. Yeah. As a matter of fact, um, one of my other side hobbies is uh, I make chainmail. Nice. And I made a belly dance belt for a friend of mine one year for Christmas, and she absolutely loved it. She still uses it to this day. Great. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for some uh, some gift tips there, and uh, go and check out um, the Machine Age Productions Indiegogo of, remind me the name there? The Gospel of Sarah. The Gospel of Sarah. Make yes. something with love. Gift cards only if it's to something you know somebody uh, really wants. And if you've got a boyfriend with big calves, knit them a pair of socks. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Renee Ritchie. Thank you. And I've got Epi back with a second idea for your Christmas uh, wish list, or perhaps for somebody else's Christmas wish list. A board game, I hear. Yes, this is well. This is one that's that's on my particular uh, wish list. I got to play this year that I've enjoyed quite a bit. Is uh, Kingdom Builder, which I believe is by the same guy who did Dominion, mm-hmm. uh, and it's a sort of an area control thing, right? Where uh, you uh, place your little houses on hexes. It's one of those kind of Euro games. Mm-hmm. But what's, what's really enjoyable about it is that uh, your victory conditions, where you get your victory points, are randomly determined at the beginning of the game. Um, and the different powers that are available are also randomly determined. So it has that same replayability that Dominion has in that it's like it's different combinations of things make the game feel different each time right. while that's crucial, yeah. Yep. similar skills. Yes, my wife got me Dominion last year, so yes, I can wholeheartedly agree with you there. I think that the fact that, it, that there is a different thing you're striving for each time, or at least a variation on it, really adds to the playability on the replayability, yeah. I should say, for sure. Excellent. Well, thanks for another hot tip there. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. Unfortunately, disaster struck for my last recording here, but I've got a recommendation from Fiasco's Jason Morningstar. His suggestion as a Christmas gift is Etrust B by Vagrant Workshop. The slug, which you can read at Drive Through RPG, 
is start a journey away from reality as you perceive it with your everyday senses. The means are elements for, from surrealism, an art movement from the 20s which tries to portray the life of the subconscious. The method is role-playing, a game where you, a group of people together create and partake in a story. The end is to free the thoughts from their usual patterns. The intention is to liberate impulsiveness and creative power, maybe even rendering everyone a slight bit wiser. So check out eTrust B. You can check that. You can find that on Drive Through RPG. It's I T R A S B Y. And now on with this week's show, which features Emily Careboss. How long have you been a role player? Um, I started role playing in college, which is a little after many people are introduced to it. Although I did own one of the the versions of Dungeons and Dragons when I was a teen, mm-hmm. but um, you know we had one of those sessions where you make characters, but you never play, and that right. was it. Right. Um, so I started in college in the early nineties. Right. And how did you? Uh, what games did you get started with? Um, all of the games that I played during the 90s were homebrews. So they were usually mishmashes of a couple different systems. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first ones that I played long-term, which were most influential, were uh, homebrews of Ars Magica. Right. With uh, a world setting that was made by the, the players. So it was inspired by, by the uh, Ars Magica system. Mm-hmm. But then they used also GURPS. Right. So we were creating characters with GURPS and then using the, the world setting sort of structure and the uh, magic system from uh, Ars Magica. And, it, um, and actually with that group, very shortly after making the characters, we kind of just did what we felt like doing. So mm. there wasn't a lot of GURPS left in there. Although it's funny because I picked up the most recent version of GURPS recently in a, a game store. Mm. And read it, and I had this amazing feeling of deja vu. <laughs> right? Yeah. I haven't played the game since that time, but just you know, looking at the point by system, and uh, it, it just brought so many memories back. Good memories, or just memories? Oh, definitely good memories. Right. Good memories. Although, although some of <clears throat> some of my craziest characters came from that type of system, where you know, you you, you just sort of hunt around and you get the, the advantages and the disadvantages. And so I, I had one that was um, uh, an albino with an identic memory and perfect timing. And, you know, like mm. you just kind of when you're coming from the, the list of, of skills rather than the character, mm-hmm. it's like being kind of silly sometimes. That, that's right. Yeah, I remember I would routinely choose color blindness because I didn't, it didn't really have any effect on the game, um, exactly. but it was worth ten points or something. So I'm like, hey, yeah, free ten points, nice. <laughs> and yet, being colorblind in a character, you know, if it's a game that is about, you know, what the characters feel and see and do, could be very interesting. Mm. Oh, but sure. I mean, if I had a GM that was able to to make that interesting, but no, it was just. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> um, and one of the things that Meg and I um, talked about, uh, sorry, McGay Baker, um, episode uh, 32 and 34, I think, um, we talked about was that um, GURPS was quite influential, um, although not perhaps in the way that, that the game designers may perhaps um, uh, uh, prefer. And both of us uh, thought that um, it was devoid of any real flavour, like the the setting. Well, not sorry, not the setting, but the the system itself didn't add any flavour. Like it was g- truly generic, in as much as there was no real um, connection between the setting um, and the rules system. And 
and I felt that as a consequence, it, it didn't leave a lasting impression on me in terms of wow, that was a really cool GURPS game. That was just a really that was just a cool game, right? The the, the system didn't factor prominently, and that informed my decisions for for design later on. Did you have any similar experiences? Well, it's 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 an amazing challenge that they took on mm. to make something that is truly universal, yes, and and then has to be truly generic. So. Mm-hmm. The answer might be there, um, and I I find that what we mainly did was to craft the characters using them, right. and then this particular group we were just inspired to play with the characters. So right. once you have an interesting setting that you are uh, inspired by, yes, you can just go forward and um, and occasionally you know sort of the the gaps between when we picked up the the mechanics to do something that was required by the system became greater and greater and hmm. so i think i think it really it, the strength of the the system in my eyes really is their attention to detail of the settings you know all the uh, it's such a truism that people buy the grips books and just use those for whatever they want mm-hmm. because they love the research that's been done and yes. uh, the interesting details that you get about all different periods and i mean that's that's one of the joys of role playing yes. is that to be anywhere and anyone at mm-hmm. any place. Right. Yeah, yeah. that, that uh, the, the make it truly universal is, um, is, is quite a feat. The thing that about it that I found challenging was to just on the face of the, of the book itself to develop any sort of um, you know, flavor, if you like, of, of what's going on. I'm going to play a, a generic space game or I'm going to play a generic you know, modern, right. modern game or something like that. So, so that was why when I, I wrote my book I thought about what type of game I wanted to play and then I developed the system um, around that rather than rather than the other way around it was coming exactly. I came to the idea sort of in the opposite direction I think we're, we're working in such a different environment now as game designers hmm. because instead of sort of having a, a very fairly well understood skeleton of how a role-playing game works hmm. and certainly grips did different things you know having the point by system was good because then yes. it, was, it was it was like uh, all cart you know you could mm-hmm. figure out what you wanted you could take a little of this take a little of that mm-hmm. and you set it to the setting but in the end if if the system is very similar to other systems then there is a certain element of, of uniformity that comes through right whereas if you take if you come from the approach of saying, okay, here's a story that I want to tell. Here's a world of stories, this particular setting, these particular people, this particular situation, these issues that they're dealing with, what would support that? And then do what you said, where you take the structure that the players are going to use and match it to that story. Right. It, it's, a, it's a very different experience. Mm. So you started off with with GURPS and some um, some homebrew um, Ars Magica, and and where did you go from there? Well, I spent about ten years, probably altogether, doing the the Ars Magica inspired freeform or in, uh, like improvised system type mm-hmm. gaming. Right. In between, in the middle there, there was a, a chunk of pretty you know standard d20 based game that would it was definitely a homebrew i don't really know what games were put together for that but it um uh it sort of came together as you know a fun adventure you know we were killing gods and running around the universe yeah <laughs> um but these two sections that the first section where i played with some friends that i lived with who've moved to portland since then 
um, where they had crafted this world based on Ars Magica. And then actually Meg and her, her husband Vincent and I played for six years in um, a Direct from the Ars Magica system, um, it was we used some of the setting materials. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we set it in a covenant, uh, a tribunal rather that was canon. You know, part mm-hmm. of the the normal background, sure. but a little bit off the beaten track. Um, sure. And uh, so we did, you know, a bunch of years of play of that, where it was just the three of us co-creating the world. Um, no single GM. All three of us, you know, taking different parts of things that we were interested in and sort of sort of adopting the role of GM for each other um, sure. and, uh, and mainly having it be led by the characters and the, you know, the situation and the setting. And then from there, we got to a certain point where uh, all of us had started doing mm, sort of more formal design at that point. Although mm-hmm. I think Vincent had been doing that forever. And um, uh, we got to a certain point where there was, a, there was sort of, coming to the end of the narrative threads that we'd woven together. Yes. And there were certain roadblocks. I, I myself felt like I just didn't know how to provide adversity or just do the things that a GM did for the others all the time. Like sometimes it was clear, okay, here's a threat. We're going to have you guys deal with it. Or, or here's an intrigue. And, you know, we're going to hell, you know, I'll, I'll hold this side where these people have this agenda. But it, it just it just wasn't clear, and even though exploring the world was fascinating, and we'd been doing it for six years, mm-hmm. um, we decided to wrap up that campaign and then start playing other games. Because at that point, there was a lot more of the independent games that are available. This was around um, 2005, I think. I think we started in 99 and went to 2005, and by that time... Um, Dogs in the Vineyard either had just come out or was just about to come out. Mm-hmm. And I started ro- writing my games. Meg had started writing her games. And so that was really a, a wonderful time, actually, to emerge into different games that weren't, you know, just we what we were homebrewing in right. our labs at home. Right. Um, and so many of the those games you could play quickly. You know, you didn't yes. have to play for a year. You could play them in one night and have a really good story mm-hmm. or over a short campaign. So, yes. you know, we played Polaris and um, uh, Mountain Witch and um, a lot of the wonderful other games, Universalis and uh, Dogs in the Vineyard and so on. Right, right. And so what are you playing now? Let's see. Um, right now, um, there is a bit of a retro thing going on in, in uh, our gaming circle. Um, uh, I think it's centered around Epi, actually, my husband. Um, we've been playing um, uh, a game that's quite an old game um, that's Prince Valiant, based on the old comic strip series. Yes. Yep. And we um, actually read the comic series. Uh, uh, or there's there's beautifully uh, published um, bound versions. Mm-hmm. Um, and we a local gaming store near us in Northampton, Modern Myths, which is a great store. Uh, has a, a, a monthly um, graphic novel book club where people mm-hmm. read it and then talk about it once a month. And that was one right. of our books. And after that, uh, Epi remembered that he had seen the game and, you know, been curious about it. And we loved the comic so much. It's these wonderful adventure tales in sort of Arthurian uh, England and Europe. Sure. Uh, that we were curious about the game. And also the Prince Valiant is, um, it's it's kind of an influential game. It, it did some things that were different um, in whenever it was published, I think sometime in the nineties. 
and uh, there's a, an element of uh, trading GMs. You know, there's you know you can have there's it's, you're supposed to start with one GM who sort of creates the world for everybody, but then there are these uh, adventures that you can run that players can grab and run, and then if you do run them, then you get like the certificate that you've run an adventure, cool. and it help, basically it's sort of a drama point. At some point, you can you can use that to have something go your way. When okay, it, right, it's nice. And that's been a blast. And then um, this is very infrequent, but we've been playing uh, Tunnels and Trolls nice. with Vince and Meg and their kids. And that's been wonderful. That's just a really, actually, a great game for adults and kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's it's a it's a it's actually um, a parallel um, game with Dungeons and Dragons. It came out like I think very soon after Dungeons and Dragons did. Yes, but it um, it has some interesting things where it just makes it. Fun to play as a group, and you don't feel taken down by people if they're a different level or if they're right. weaker than you, because everybody pools their um, their damage. Right. And so we just have a blast being silly and nice. around the countryside. Yeah. Yeah, I think I saw a few pictures on uh, Meg's G Plus stream there oh. of you guys uh, doing exactly that. Um, oh yeah, we did a, a live action one session. That was really funny. We went up on there's a there's a, a lovely hill near us that has a path that winds to the top of the mountain, and so we uh, we took this adventure that was the uh, the goat quest. We were trying to rescue the pet goat that belonged to a troll, mm-hmm. and so we just sort of pretended we were acting it out, and then had some adventures up on the top of the mountain. That was that was a, that was really fun. Mm, cool. And I also happened to notice in Meg's stream that uh, she played a live action a thousand one nights. Oh yes, that was really great. I'm so glad we got to do that this weekend. Um, uh, Meg's game, A Thousand One Nights, is based on uh, the Arabian Nights, and in the, the most recent edition, which she did, which is just gorgeously um, uh, illustrated um, by some folks from Italy uh, who had translated it earlier, and now it has back, come back to us. Mm-hmm. Um, she has a live action version, and uh, the game's really suited to it because you know it's a game of storytelling. So it, it nestles in being able to dress up and eat foods that are appropriate to the setting. Yes. We had like lavish, you know, silks uh, and and uh, Turkish delight and uh, different types of delicious figs and things. Yes. Um, and then in between, we would um, add to the Sultan's pleasure. Uh, entertain one another by telling stories, which is which is how the tabletop version of the game is played. Uh, right. So it's sort of like taking the the situation of being in the court and telling the tales, which is what's happening in the game, and then you actually do it and act it out. It was, it was really fun. Yeah, that was one of the things that we had discussed there, that the uh, one of the, the questions for uh, season uh, two here is, you know, what's the best type of, of role-playing snack? And um, uh, Meg took it one step further by sort of discussing how uh, the 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 best role playing snack is a role playing snack which which matches with with what it is that you're playing and and she talked about you know the the a thousand and one nights and that that respect and it just adds an extra layer that I hadn't considered to the whole experience you know having those you know topical if you like foods and things available. You know, One just- of my favorite moments of the night actually uh, we, when we played on Saturday was um, we were taking a break and you know there was going to be some dancing we actually had some folks who do belly dancing who were mm-hmm. going to perform for us. And then I, I just I, I had been 
sort of helping hosting. So I'd been focusing on making sure that everyone was understanding things and having a good time. And then right. I took a break and had some food. And there was this amazing piece of, I think it was Turkish Delight, that was um, rose-flavored. Right. And I just took a bite out of that, and I just felt transported yes. <laughs> into this world. Yes, oh, absolutely. That's the, the strongest connection, like, is between your olfactory senses and the, and the brain. It's the, the most prime, primordial, I suppose, and, and that uh, very evocative, having having certain foods and certain smells around, for sure. I can certainly uh, empathize with that. Um, exactly. Uh, so what's your favorite book or uh, supplement that uh, something that you don't necessarily use every day but something that you um, you know always go back to and always gives you some satisfaction or, or pleasure all right um, can I have two answers to that you can have as many answers as you like you're the guest <laughs> <laughs> it's always hard to choose well the two that come to my mind uh, are one that I admire the most one of my, my favorite games that I think is is just Beautifully done. Uh, and that's Drifter's Escape by Ben Lehman. Right. And uh, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's... Uh, I'm not. A, no, tell me about it. It's a gorgeous little volume that looks, when you look at it, it looks like a book. And indeed it is. Ben's a writer and his brother's a writer. Um, so they collaborated on this game. And the half of the book is the game of Drifter's Escape. And it's set in the um, early 20th century of the United States. And basically, it's about a drifter who was a, a hobo or someone who's who's perhaps in the 30s, perhaps a different time, but who someone is sort of wandering from place to place and is trying to make make the best they can out of life. Sure. And um, uh, they're in the way that the game works is they're sort of struggling between the devil and the man. So it's are they going to go along with the strictures of society or are they going, going to go with the temptations of the darker side? Right. And then they meet other people who are living their lives in you know some town that they stumble upon and get mixed up in, uh, in whatever these people's mm-hmm. lives are. And so the game has that flavor. And then the book itself, half of it are these absolutely exquisite uh, short stories that have the same theme, right? And um, it's uh, it's really one of my my favorite volumes of a book because it just so beautifully represents the um, the period and what the game is expressing right. by giving you these gorgeous little uh, well crafted examples in the stories. Yeah, that was one of the things that I enjoyed about the the first run of the White Wolf books was that they took a lot of time to you know create the flavor of the of the game they were hoping people were going to uh, play as uh, as they went along. So I can imagine, you know, having that evocative fiction going along with it would be really great fodder for a player that was sort of hoping to get into character and also get some great story hooks for the uh, for the, the game master or whatever the, the title is for that that work. Right, exactly. And the book, the way it's presented, it, it looks like a book of short stories. So if someone was interested in that period. And they picked it up and read those short stories. They they wouldn't be disappointed. They'd be, uh, I, I think, very fulfilled by reading those stories. And then might go, hmm, boy, what's this game about? Right, sure. Yeah, and the second book? Oh, the second book is the name book that was edited by Jason Morningstar. Right. And uh, in so many games that I've played recently, we've just said, okay, where's the game? Where's the name book? And uh, we actually have two copies of it in our house, so I'm right. very glad. <laughs> right. 
Because <laughs> when we have large tables of people, it's nice to have one at one end of the table and one at the other end of the table. Right. And it's just such a great resource. I love it. Right. Um, so can you tell the listeners a little bit about that book? Sure. It's a, a, a book that was put together through collaboration primarily on the website Story Games, the, the Story Games Forum. Mm-hmm. And uh, I believe that Jason Morningster, uh, he, I don't know if he started the thread, but he, he definitely oversaw it and, and ended up editing the book. Uh, it's illustrated by uh, Remy Troyer, I believe. Mm-hmm. And um, it is uh, a compilation of lists of names from different times, settings, periods, themes um, right. that, that were submitted by, uh, you know, dozens of different people. Right. Meg did one. Uh, I, I helped with a couple of lists, but I didn't actually send it in. That'll, that'll always be one of my great regrets. Mm. But but everybody had a, a fairly finite amount to, to submit. You just submitted 20 names. You right. know? And yes. then maybe you do 20 male, 20 female, 20 last names. Right. And so there's Japanese names, Celtic names, uh, mm. names from different countries in Africa, names from different periods in history, right. um, hillbilly names. Uh, there's yeah, there's a list of game designer names. I think you know just as a as a joke, mm-hmm. and uh, and it's just the kind of thing that if you're role playing, it's one of the things that that uh, can be a stumbling block if you're if you're not if you're not playing a game where the GM has created the setting and has worked everything out and knows who all the people are or has, you know, a list of names for characters that you're going to encounter. Yes. If you're playing a game that's more uh, uh, spontaneous and off the cuff and mm-hmm. it's going to be created as you go, it's absolutely one of the, the most um, wonderful resources you can have because, or even just if you're making up your character, you can just get stuck there not having any ideas mm. about what to name a character. And yes. so have to look to is great. Yeah, it's interesting how powerful a name is when it comes to putting a character together. It's almost like until you have that name, the the character mm-hmm. is not, you know, like it's it's there's it's a case of a you know like it's a holistic thing, right? Like where the, the sum of the parts is greater than the whole, and and even though that the the name is just one part, it's so so important. Um, when really realistically, you know, like it's everybody says, you know, I'm not. You, I'm not what you label me. I'm, you know, like I'm mm-hmm. all this very sophisticated stuff. But, but to, to look at the the reverse of that, it's like until you get that good name there, you know, you you really don't have anything. It's interesting how reality juxtaposes with um, with fantasy in this respect, and is almost polar opposite. But um, is there anything coming out that you're particularly looking forward to? Let's see. There are a whole raft of games that have been kickstarted recently that mm. I'm really intrigued by. Um, one game that I'm actually submitting a uh, supplement for is called Heroin. Right. H e r o i n e at the end, yes. as a female hero. Mm. And uh, so I'm really looking forward to that game. And the the writer of that, Josh Jordan, is inspired by um, adventure fantasy tales that have uh, a female lead character who's going into another world, and right. uh, you know whether it's Alice in Wonderland or Wizard of Oz and. Um, you know, there's just, there actually are quite a lot of, of, uh, models of that. And so this is going to be a game where people can play that sort of story. And nice. I'm really looking forward to that. Nice. And is, is there anything you've had that's come out recently or anything you're working on? Um, I have a new game that I'm working on that I'm quite excited about. If, if I can talk to you about it a little, that'd be great. Yes, of course. Um, it's, um, it's a game called Compass. Yes. And 
it's it's very much inspired by that gaming that I was talking about earlier, my earliest days where we were creating the world and creating the characters and having a long um, a lot of time to really just be in this place and mm. be with these characters. And so this game also is um, it's sort of stepping back from a lot of sort of traditional tools that people use, um, you know, rolling dice to see if you succeed or not, or, you know, having stats, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I've always been a little bit light on numbers in my games. Mm-hmm. Um, but this one is, is even more so a step to the left. Right. And it's very much inspired by the, the gaming that I did with these various sets of friends, including Vincent and Meg, and then my friends from Portland. Yes. Where we very consciously were interested in the the world and the characters as people as beings you know like we talked earlier on about um colorblindness yes right in you know nine tenths of games really that's just going to be a throwaway thing that wouldn't matter yes a lot of games these days that could be something that really is important yes yeah for sure yeah you know maybe uh take a thousand and one nights if you have a character who is colorblind they might um uh, unknowingly give the um, the wrong color uh, um, robe to the, the sultan and have his head cut off or something like that. Certainly, yeah. So there's a way that that could come in. Yes. But but a lot of those little details, they don't really matter. You know, mm. and there's not a lot of um, joy that's, that's allowed to be put into the small details about a world. Right. So encompass, um, you know, you're not necessarily going to go go to the finest detail and knowing everything about the world, but at the very least you're invited to sort of revel in the details. Um, mm. Never know, you know, what will be important. That's right. Yeah, well that's the thing is it, it seems like a lot of that type of stuff gets glossed over, but oftentimes um, if you take a moment to stop and smell the roses as it were figurative mm. or literal, then you know that's often interesting things can come out of that. So I'm interested to see how that's going to translate in, in gameplay in a game that specifically takes the trouble to you know make it points out you know those those roses or, or the coffee or whatever the particular setting might be. Yeah. And do you have a, a timeline on that, or is it just comes to you when it comes this to one, you? And this one is in very early development, so I don't have any kind of timeline on it. But it's it's fun because I'm doing the early development right now. Right. So we've played it twice, and um, it's very much the kind of game where I'm feeling out what are going to be the set of mechanics that right. feel right for this game. Yes. Because actually a lot of it is just being open to the inspiration that arises at the table. So it yes. might even be that I'll have one set of rules that I say, okay, I know absolutely that this set of rules works yes. to do this 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 thing, which is um, the, the premise is that you're creating um, a small community, you know, a couple of kingdoms, a couple of uh, tribes mm-hmm. that send out a group of people in a particular direction on the compass, you yes. know, going north, south, east, or west, mm-hmm. and to explore the world that's unknown to bring back something or to bring out something that is needed or that, you know, mm-hmm. maybe they trade with someone else. Right. And so what the players do is they explore that world and they create it as they're going along right. and then perhaps bring their characters back. Um, so... Um, you know, we're really just at the point where um, I'm figuring out what's what exactly is needed. But yes. but also, I might have sort of a second way that this game is presented, where it just gives you the tools yes. and says, 
just as your characters are moving out into the world and exploring the unknown, you too can do this um, mechanically. And actually, that, that's kind of similar uh, as a friend who helped me um, uh, play test it recently, Evan Torner, to another game that I um, basically put out into the universe. Fly, be free. <laughs> <called the, laughs> play with intent. Um, right. uh, I worked on with Matisse Holter. Right. Who, um, he does a lot of really, really great gaming, mm-hmm. and he wrote um, uh, Archipelago, actually. Right. And um, that one is it's it's a set of tools that you can use to create a, a, a live or freeform game, and right. so we're doing a little bit doing that with ta- with um, Compass as well, but meant for tabletop play. Right. Uh, so, uh, who is your favorite villain? Hmm. Well. One of my favorite villains is Hans Gruber. And did you talk about Die Hard on one of your... your- uh, Die Hard's come up a few times. Not not in the sense of... Uh, I think Hans Gruber might be somebody else's favorite villain, but that's it, it, okay because I sort of identified a, a sort of a few different types of villains. There's, and Hans Gruber's one of them, but I'll just quickly run through them here because everybody's heard them Please. a million times before. But there's Hannibal Lecter, who, um, who you can admire certain qualities about, but you absolutely cannot get on board with his overall drive like there's it's totally alien or at least it should be to most you know regular folks um there is um uh the joker who you can't possibly you, i mean you can't get on board with his his goals because his goals are again they're they're alien they're t- completely alien but there's and there's really nothing about him that you can you can empathise with either. So whereas you might um, admire that Hannibal Lecter is erudite and he's polite and he's smart and all that type of stuff, um, you you just can't get on board with his goals. And, and then the Joker doesn't, well, at least for me anyway, doesn't have any particular things that um, I find appealing um, about him. And his goals again are so chaotic or so. Um, are so foreign to me that I can't. I also can't identify with them. There's Hans Gruber, who I cannot get on board with his methodology, but I can certainly get behind his ultimate goal, which is to you know retire on twenty percent after stealing, you know, large large quantities of, of money. And then the last one is um, Lex Luthor or Lex Luthor type character, where the only way that we know that Lex Luthor is a bad guy is because the story is told through the prism of uh, of Superman. Whereas if we were telling the story from um, Lex Luthor's standpoint, he'd be the hero of that story. So those are sort of the four very mm. broad brush strokes that that we ha- that I have posited for for villains. But tell me more about Hans Gruber. Well, he's he's the the, the lead villain from uh, Die Hard, of course. Mm-hmm. And um, I think I think what I like about him is that he he does it with style, mm-hmm. and he is he's clever. He's clever in what he does. Yes. And you know he he overlays uh, different motives. He he. You know, in 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 this, the movie, of course, the, he presents it that it's this ideological issue that they're you know um, uh, taking over this this um, building and these hostages for this this particular ideological cause. Mm-hmm. But in fact, it's just a cover, and they're just stealing money. They're just yes. an old out and out thieving. You know. Yes. Yep. And then that beautiful moment where uh, Bruce Willis's character John McClane comes upon him. And there's this moment where you watch Hans Gruber realize that McLean doesn't know that he's one of the villains. Yes. So he takes advantage of that moment mm-hmm. and presents himself as one of the hostages. Yes. Is just 
classic. Yes. Ever. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think that uh, that Alan Rickman really uh, really owns that role, right? Like, there's no, um, yeah, he's he's perfect for that part. I mean, well, that is to say, Alan Rickman so totally em- embodied that that character that I can't envisage anybody else um, anybody That's, else playing it. There's one other villain that actually that I thought of that um, might be a little you know different, but sure. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the, the television show Spartacus. Uh, I haven't. I haven't seen Spartacus. I saw the old-fashioned movie, but I haven't seen the, oh. the show Spartacus. But go ahead. Wonderful movie. We watched that uh, be- right before we started watching Spartacus, and I'm glad I did. It was it was a really really interesting contrast. Right. But Lucy Lawless plays a character on the Spartacus television show. Right. And I think she's one of my favorite villains um, right. because she's extremely competent. She's really she's tremendously smart. But what's wonderful about her is that although she is absolutely a villain, I mean she does horrible things to people mm-hmm. you you keep understanding her and admiring her and and almost rooting for her because you see um some of what she's doing is is rooted in her love for her husband i mean and it's an right. honest love that you can get behind yes sure and and you then later see her in in times when she is absolutely reduced to just a, a situation that would destroy anyone else right. in the third season. And she, she perseveres and continues and goes to amazing lengths to, you know, accomplish her goals. Yes. And even though you can't identify with them, as you, as you were saying about in your scheme, you have to kind of admire her. You, 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 there's just something that she does. She does it with such, um, with such power and mm. such, Grace, that it's, it's, uh, it's seductive. Okay, so if you could role play with four people, living or dead, who would they be? And you, you can't choose people that you currently role play with because obviously they're the number one people to, to role play with ever. Um, and you can't choose a deceased family or, or friends that you just like the opportunity to, to see again. And you also can't choose uh, game designers. So uh, if anybody other than, the, than those groups are, uh, are free game, dead or alive, uh, who would you play with? All right. I think I'm going to go topical here because there's sure. so many wonderful combinations that, that there could be. If I was sure. going my own desires, I'd probably put no, the grass Tyson on the list, yes. but let, let's think about changing the world here. And right. I think that I would go with, um, Barack Obama, mm-hmm. John Boehner, um, and, uh, who, maybe Grover Nordquist. And, um, let's see who's an amazing liberal, uh, thinker. Um, Oh, I'm blanking on who would be like the right fourth person to be in that mix. Um, but I would love to be able to like sit down with people who would never in a million years think about role playing and right. who are so ingrained in their, uh, you know, either um, power politics or just, you know, trying to make things go from the, 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 the normal workaday situations and to throw them into a role playing situation where. Instead, they would have to think on their feet, create who they were, work together, um, just be something else than they are normally, and mm-hmm. see that what, what that would bring. I think that, that would be really amazing. Right. And what game would you play? Um, let's see. Um, what would be appropriate to that goal? Um, well, maybe I'll go with something close to home. I think I'd play Swords Without Master with, that, with them. That would be great. Cool. And what sort of character do you envisage um, Barack Obama would play? Oh, I think he'd be awesome as like the total like 
stereotype barbarian with the horns on his head and the the fur fur loincloth because it's so far from him. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that uh, um, you know playing something totally opposite to type, you know, like just I want to smash, you know, that must <laughs> that would be tremendously cathartic for him. I think you know I don't have to worry about who I'm going to offend here. I'm just going to smash everything. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. All right, so uh, for all the marbles then, Emily, uh, if you had one role-playing related wish, what would it be? I would wish that people could see role-playing games as a form of uh, interactive literature because I think people tend to see role-playing as a, this other thing that's kind of off in a corner, and it's not. Ladies and gentlemen, Emily Kerboss. That's it for episode 44 of Penny Red. For any questions or comments arising from the show, daniel at hazardgaming.com. Not sure what was going to happen for next week's show. My plan is to record this week, but in the absence of a show, then many happy returns of the season for whatever holiday you celebrate, or even if you're just celebrating spending time with family. So until next time, keep talking the walk. Mm-hmm.